Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Well, last time we began our conversation by talking a little bit about what it is that we're going to try to do here in this course. Uh, we talked about some principles for studying Scripture, right? We talked about how we're going to be looking at things from kind of a, a hermeneutic that says we believe what the author intended is what the text actually means. So all throughout, we're going to be looking at what the passages before and after say about whatever we're trying to figure out. We're going to be trying to figure out what historical background information can help us understand what the author really meant. We're going to be looking at different words at times and trying to trace those through and trying to figure those out. I hope, um, and we're going to see this a little bit tonight, I hope you don't feel that this is just, that, that at times we're just engaging in kind of an academic exercise, right? There's going to be some technical pieces to some things that we're doing, and it is not my attempt to try to, to try to impress you with how deep the waters go in academia, okay? I'm just not impressed by that, and so I hope you're not either, okay? Um, instead, what I'm hoping to do through all of this is just try to help us understand some of the complexity that exists in the world of Scripture, especially as we try to dig into some of these Old Testament texts, and there are some passages maybe we felt like we had a handle on what they mean, and then we try to dig into the text a little more and figure out maybe we didn't know as much as we thought we did, and that's okay. Um, and so just be patient as we move through these sections, and uh, hopefully it'll be, it'll be helpful for us to be able to see the fuller picture of Scripture. Um, I have a few uh, suggestions here. Um, someone was asking about some questions about some of the historical matters in Exodus. We said a little bit last week, uh, we're not going to spend too much time dwelling on some of the historical pieces of the Exodus, the, trying to f- provide proof for the question, did the Exodus really happen? My answer is yes, it did. Did the Israelites really come out of Egypt? Yes. Did God part the Red Sea? Yes. Beyond that, uh, there's all sorts of discussions we could have about the numbers and whether or not this is viable and whether the numbers described in the Bible are accurate. I think they are. Um, And there's all sorts of commentaries that really dive into some of those questions. Um, Some of the other questions. Who Who was the Pharaoh ruling when Moses was on the scene? I'm not sure. I think there's several pretty good options, but I'm not certain, and the Bible doesn't seem to give us a name to tell us for sure. And so some of these commentaries will really dig into this. Um, Dwayne Garrett, in his commentary, uh, he has like, it's something like 150 pages of just introduction dealing with these uh, critical issues. Where did the Exodus take place? Where did they cross the Red Sea? Um, some, of thing, some of the things like that. And so we could spend a whole lot of time answering some of these questions, uh, but we're just not going to, in this class, 
spend a ton of time on those things because I think I'd rather get to the text. Does this make sense? So I wanted to provide these resources for you if you're interested in digging deeper and trying to understand some of these things. Uh, but beyond that, uh, I'll kind of leave it there. If you have questions when we get to some of these points, feel free to ask them. Uh, but I may say to you, here's a good commentary you can check out that might help you with that idea, and let's just move on. Okay? All right. Well, we talked about Exodus chapter 1 and the connection to Genesis, right? This idea that the story of Genesis is continuing. But then Joseph dies. A pharaoh rises up that doesn't know Joseph. And now, all of a sudden, we find ourselves with the Israelites, a foreign people living in a foreign land with the king that doesn't honor foreigners. And this is a problem for them, right? And so, Pharaoh begins to move into population control mode. He tries to control their population through various means, through telling the midwives to kill the oldest or to kill the sons that are born, right? Well, that doesn't work because essentially the midwives are crafty in their response, right? Maybe they don't outright lie, but they're, they're very crafty in the way that they reply. And so that doesn't work. He then issues this basically uh, decree that says kill all of the boys, kill all of the baby boys in the whole land. And so Moses' mother, who we meet in chapter 2, without a name, right? She's just a certain woman. She has this beautiful baby who is very good, and when she can't keep it any longer, she actually obeys the command of Pharaoh, right? And she takes her son, and she puts him in the river, but she puts him in an ark, just like the word used for what Noah built. This one's smaller. And there, in the river, she probably watches over him, sends her daughter to make sure that he's okay. And of course, in this divinely ordained moment, the daughter of Pharaoh happens to be bathing. She finds Moses. She adopts him as her own. Moses' own mother then gets to nurse him for several years until Moses goes into Pharaoh's house. It certainly seems that God is working through all of this. And then Moses goes, once he's older, sees a couple people fighting, gets angry, and kills an Egyptian. And then he hides him in the sand. And then he finds out this is known. People know about this. And then Pharaoh wants to kill him. And so he runs away. And we talked a little bit about how some of our mistakes and how some of the things that we do can lead us into these places of deep despair. And here Moses was in a foreign land, naming his son after his own pain and his own misery, Gershom, right? When we get to the end of chapter 2, this is where we have this, I think, uh, beautiful moment where God speaks to the people of Israel in their situation. And it says that as they cried out, God heard and God knew. What did he know? Well, he just knew. He understood. He saw their suffering, and he knew it. So now, where we pick it up in Exodus chapter 3, is answering this question of, okay, so what is God going to do about it? How is God going to respond to their cries of suffering, to their pain? Well, in a pretty dramatic way, as we're going to find out. Okay, so Exodus chapter 3, let's go ahead and jump in. Now Moses, it says, was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. It's a different name, isn't it? 
than we had just a few verses before. Rule is uh, what the Hebrew says a few verses before it, back in chapter 2. I think this is just one of these places where people had a few different names and you're referring to them by certain names depending on the context. And so I don't think this is a new person. I think this is the same guy. Jethro is rule. Rule is Jethro. And so he's keeping the flocks of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flocks to the west side of the wilderness. And he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. This phrase, the mountain of God, is used only here in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 8. Only two places in all of Scripture. Um, I think this is the same mountain as Mount Sinai. Okay. Now, was it at this moment known as the mountain of God? I'm not sure, but I think Moses, writing later in his life, knew exactly where this was, that he had just happened to end up as he was driving the flocks of his father. And so, as he drives them, there, that's where he ends up, before the mountain of God. And then, verse 2, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. So here's a question. Why did God appear in a bush? Certainly seems like there could have been some more amazing options, right? It piqued his curiosity. It did pique his curiosity. But why not a tree? Or why not, why not the whole mountain? Why not an angel? There's not many trees in the wilderness. There's not many trees in the wilderness. That's true. That's a good point. Less scary? Okay. It's le- less intimidating. So instead of running away, he's going to, he's going to go after it. Yeah, Perhaps. I'm not sure I know exactly why God chose to use a bush instead of something else. Uh, But I do think it's interesting that the word for bush in Hebrew, the word that is used for bush is the word sanah. very similar, actually, just one letter different in Hebrew from the word for Sinai. So perhaps there's a connection there. He appears in the Sinai so that he can talk to Moses about Sinai, his plan to rescue the people and bring them to Sinai. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 33 verse 16 suggests that God is a God who dwells in the bush. God is the one who chooses to dwell there. Uh, So whatever reason he chose, this is where he is. He's chosen to show up in a flame of fire within the bush itself. And the angel of the Lord here is indistinguishable from God himself. And so, notice once again that God is choosing to intervene in history in order to help bring his word and his purposes to fruition among his people. I mean, think about that, right? Abraham was just living his life, and then God interrupts it. He intervenes in history and says, go to the place that I will show you. Jacob is on his way 
to visit his mother's brother, clueless about what's going to happen next in life, and all of a sudden he has this dream where he meets God. Right? This happens so often throughout Scripture. Uh, People experience God intervening in their lives in order to bring His purposes to fruition. He is not a God who is completely uh, separated from the events in our world, but a God who steps in and acts. And this is what He does here in the bush. Verse 3 then, Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Um, I think the bush has the desired impact, right? He sees the bush burning, which I would think would be rather odd. But then as he looks at it, he's realizing the fire is there, but the bush is staying the same. So the fire does not seem to have an effect on the bush burning up and withering away. And so he thinks, well, this is strange. Not much to do out here in the wilderness. I guess I'll go check it out, right? And so he heads over to check out the bush. Verse 4, when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. The names of God shift here in this verse. The Lord saw and then God said. Doug Stewart, in his commentary, thinks that uh, this repetition of Moses' name, Moses, Moses, uh, is not perhaps what we traditionally think. I think we think of this as kind of like you're in trouble, right? Like my kids, if I say their name twice, it's like, oh, dad's serious, right? I'm in trouble. I did something wrong. And so, I don't know, maybe it's Charlton Heston and that background that we're dealing with. But I think of, you know, Moses, Moses, and he's terrified and wondering, I'm in trouble with somebody. Who is this? Uh, Doug Stewart, in his commentary, makes the argument that really throughout Scripture, whenever you find this, uh, it's actually, a, he calls it a repetition of endearment. In other words, you're repeating the name uh, because you love them or because you have a relationship with them. And so several of these places where you see a name occurring twice, this perhaps is what's happening. I don't know. I, I find it somewhat compelling. He... Uh, Yeah, hey, okay, you should know who this is. Perhaps, think about um, the story of Samuel as a child, right? Laying in the tabernacle, right? Samuel, Samuel. Well, perhaps that's not Samuel being in trouble. Perhaps it's God calling Samuel and saying, I I want to speak to you, Samuel, right? Um, We could talk about several other places, I think one place is the Psalms, right? Psalm 22, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What Jesus says on the cross, perhaps it's not so much, um, perhaps it's not so much a cry of anger as much as a, a cry of God, help, right? I think even of Acts chapter 9, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Perhaps the tone is more of one of endearment. I love you, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And it changes his life. And so we have these these encounters 
of people with the divine when God seems to say their name twice. Perhaps he's, he's not saying it because they're in trouble. Perhaps he's saying it because it's out of his kind of endearing love for them. And so, he says, Moses replies, here I am, which is just kind of the way people normally respond, okay? Uh, Jacob calls to his son, and Joseph answers, here I am. And Isaiah, in the throne room of God, says, uh, who will go for us? And he says, here I am. It's just a, a common way to respond, right? Here I am, is what Moses says. I think it's interesting, though, that God is known as the great I am, and so it's almost, uh, I don't know how it translates from Hebrew, but it could be, you know, like him saying, here, God, you know, here I am. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I, I think the Hebrew actually would, would not prove that point. Right. So, it is interesting in English, yeah. an interesting feature of English. But the Hebrew is, uh, for here I am, is hineni, um, all kind of one word, and then you're going to see a different verb totally used for God saying that I am. So, it's more of, in, in Hebrew, it's more of just like, here, I. And then when we take it into English, we say am, right? So, um, this seems to be what Moses is saying. It's like, I'm here, I'm right here. What do you want to do? And so, listen to what God says. He said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Taking off someone's sandals is surely a sign of respect. Moses thought he was on a mountain. He didn't realize he was in God's house. Right? And you don't wear your dirty sandals into God's house. Right? So he takes them off. I think this phrase, holy ground, the only other place it occurs is Joshua 5, verse 15, when we find this mighty warrior from God. Joshua's like, are you with us or against us? He's like, neither. I don't know if that's encouraging or not, but here I am. So the, the place where that warrior is standing is called holy ground. I think this is like Eden. God is reestablishing the sacred space here on earth. And I think in many ways this is the first time since Eden that God has chosen to set his feet, if you will, on terra firma, on the ground, okay? This theme of God's presence, I think, is actually one of the major themes of the book of Exodus. So perhaps it would be helpful for us to kind of pause at this point and ask the question, what is the book of Exodus about. Okay? What is the book of Exodus about? Tell you what, we could use some time to get to know the people next to us. So turn to someone next to you. What is the book of Exodus about? What do you think is a theme of the book of Exodus? Turn around, get to know some people around you. So what is the book of Exodus about? As if you could distill the book of Exodus into just a word or two. Okay? Deliverance? What else? Coming home. Okay, what else? Yeah. Okay, a new beginning. Okay.
Very good. Anything else? Okay. Okay. Um, start a journey. Good. Okay. I feel like I've heard that before. The story of God's salvation. Yeah. So I think all of these are, in some way or another, themes that run throughout the book of Exodus. But I think as we think about this, one of the most helpful ways to try to figure out what is a book about is to ask, how does it end? Okay. And how does the book of Exodus end? Does anyone know? This is in the part that maybe isn't so exciting, right? In your one-year Bible reading plan, you were doing really good <laughs> up until you got to like Exodus 34, and then it all started to go downhill. Nope, they don't go into the promised land yet. 35, 6, 7, 8, 9, and chapter 40. Yeah, it's all about the building of the tabernacle. In fact, a lot of what we find in Exodus 35, 36, 37, 38, 39, 40 already has been said in the 20s of Exodus. It's just like, repeat it, and they did it, right? So why couldn't he have just written that? Well... We'll talk about that at the end of the course. If we get there, I don't know. <laughs> at the very end of them working on the tabernacle, though, what happens? Very last thing in Exodus chapter 40. They finish the tabernacle, and then what? God's presence comes down and fills the tabernacle. Right? Yeah, right. It's right there on your paper. So if, God, if God's presence is where we end, then where is God when we start? Well, here you have the people of God living in the land of Egypt, being persecuted by a foreign king, seemingly with no one to help them. It seems, as we read through chapter 1, that God is pretty absent. We realize pretty quickly he's not absent. He's working in ways that perhaps we can't see. But I think the story of Exodus is in many ways the story of God's presence. Gradually revealing himself more and more to his people. Kind of our first major signpost along the journey is right here in Exodus chapter 3. When he appears on Mount Sinai and his presence is made known. And it will become even more so when we get to Exodus chapter 19. There, it's not the bush that's on fire, it's the whole mountain, right? And then finally, Exodus chapter 40, God finally moves in, right? Like He moves in to the neighborhood. And this is God's tent where He dwells. And so in many ways, this is what the book of Exodus is about. And one of those key things that I think we need to be paying attention to as we move throughout the book. Perhaps even for us, who could occasionally feel that God has forgotten us, it would be helpful for us to remember, no, God is the same now as He was then. He has not left us, He has not forgotten us, and He is 
not absent. In the end, he takes up residence, not in some tabernacle, but even within our hearts. And so, verse 6, I hate that we don't have enough time to really camp out on a verse like this. But listen to what he says. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. He appears to Moses as the God of your fathers. Well, he's a whole lot more than that. He's, he's the God of the entire universe, the very creator of the heavens and the earth. And yet he appears to Moses and says, I am the God of your fathers. And so Moses, Moses finds himself in this kind of first encounter with Yahweh, I think gradually being transformed. As we move throughout the book, it seems like God is slowly shaping Moses' perspective of who he really is. And notice what Moses does. He hears that it's God, and he hides his face. Because he doesn't want to look at God. When we get to Exodus chapter 33 and 34, Moses is going to ask, can I see your face? Right? So we have a complete reversal by the time we get to the end of this journey between Moses and God. And so, verse 7, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. This is the groan of a suffering spirit. Sarna, in his commentary, says this word is pervaded by moral outrage and soul-stirring passion. This is not a simple cry. This is a desperate plea. And God has heard what his people have cried out. Verse 8, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Okay, so a land flowing with milk and honey. What comes to your mind when you hear this? Cows. Okay, it sounds sticky, yes. Okay, so lots of cows. What else? Lots of vegetation. Lots of vegetation. Beauty. Good. Green. I heard someone say bees. Lots of bees. Maybe they just stay making the honey and they don't bother you. But, right? So yeah, that's what we traditionally think of. Milk and honey, like our milk and honey, right? So cow's milk and and honey from bees. This phrase is actually found 20 times throughout Scripture. This is the very first occurrence. But what is God referring to here? Well, the, the, word, for, um, the word for milk... Okay, just a brief aside here. Don't fall asleep on me. Okay? All right? So, the word for milk in Hebrew, uh, has some vowels to it, and the vowels were not original to the text. Some friends of ours, we call them the Masoretes, they lived about 600 AD, okay? Uh, They went through and they took this text that was just consonants and difficult to read, and they added in vowels and said, hey, here's the vowels just to help you out a little bit. 
So it's super helpful for us and helps us understand what the text is saying. But there's a few words, just like in English, if you take away all of the vowels, there's a few words that could actually be read a few different ways. And so this word for milk is one of those. It could be read as not milk, but fat, if it's repointed. And there's actually several texts from the ancient Near East that talk about a land having fat and honey as signs of abundance. I don't know if that's necessarily what God was trying to say here. Um, I think milk still might be an option, but if it is milk, what kind of milk are we talking about? Whole milk, the best. <laughs> Raw, pure, not homogenized. I don't know. Protein that we would need to, to live on. Okay. Who's, Okay, yeah, who would be producing it? Would a cow? Some kind of animal. It didn't, wouldn't really matter. Yeah. I think they, well, it seems like in the world of the ancient Near East, they had a whole lot more goats than they had cows. And so this milk is probably, if it's referring to milk, is actually referring probably to goat's milk. Okay? The goat's milk would be in abundance. There's a reason, right, that in the Song of Songs, it doesn't say, your hair is like a flock of cows. Right? It says, your hair is like a flock of goats. Because I think that's what they had plenty of. They were everywhere, right? Glad this class is not on the Song of Songs. Anyway, <laughs> the honey, right? The honey that we read, it could be very well bee honey. We do read about that several times in Scripture. Think Samson, right? He reaches into the lion carcass and pulls out the honey from the bees, Okay. But, again, the word is a little bit vague in the Hebrew as to what it's referring to, and it could refer to date or fig honey, that which you produce from dates or figs, okay? At this point in history, uh, they weren't, like, harvesting the honey from bees and putting it in little bear-shaped jars and selling it at the local farmer's market, right? They just, they didn't have the tools or technology to do that. So what they did have is the tools and technology to squeeze the juice out of figs and squeeze the juice out of dates or dry them so that you had this kind of thick, syrupy honey that then they would use for different things. And so it's quite possible that when we hear flowing with milk and honey, it may not be cow milk and bee honey, but rather goat milk and date juice or something, okay? That doesn't quite flow off the tongue like milk and honey, but uh, perhaps that's what he would have heard. Regardless, I mean, however we, uh, however we think about it, I think the message is clear. This is a land of abundance. It is flowing with all of these good things. So much so that it can be said it is flowing with milk and honey. So, God is going to bring them to the place of the nations. I don't think it's the home of the nations. I think it's the place of the nations. And we get a list here of six. We could call them the shady six, right? These are the six nations that God is going to drive out before them. We get several lists like this throughout Scripture. Verse 9, And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. So God, because he is a good God, will act to save his people from the power of the Egyptians. 
Would someone read for us Isaiah chapter 19? I put the verse there. Isaiah 19, verses 19 through 25. I want you to listen to this, especially in light of what we just read God say he was going to do to Israel and saving them from the hand of the Egyptians. Okay? Listen to what he says, Isaiah chapter 19. Uh, would someone read? Yeah, I have there 19 through 25. Okay, go ahead. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt and a monument to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and witness to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt. When they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender, and he will rescue them. So the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and in that day they will acknowledge the Lord. They will worship with sacrifices and grain offerings. They will make vows to the Lord and keep them. The Lord will strike Egypt with a plague. He will strike them and heal them. They will turn to the Lord, and he will respond to their pleas and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. So at this point in history, as we are in Exodus... God is ready to free his people from the hand of the Egyptians. But a day is coming, declares the Lord, when he will do the same even to the Egyptians. Because God is not only a God of Israel. God is a God of the whole earth. When we get to chapter 19, he will say, I chose you as a crowned jewel. Because all of the earth is mine. And one day God's going to get the whole earth. Right? This summer I went to Egypt for the first time and I was teaching to some Christians there. <clears throat> and uh, the first night I got up to, uh, the first night that I got up to speak, I was just overwhelmed by the time that I got up, by their faith, by, uh, by how they stood firm in the face of trials and persecution. And uh, someone who had gone before me had talked a little bit about Egypt being mentioned so many times in Scripture. And I stood up and I said, well, here's another passage in Isaiah chapter 19 where Egypt is mentioned. You know, how many of us knew that that was in Isaiah chapter 19, right? And so I'm thinking I'll share this with them and kind of bless them with this word, Egypt, my people. And I tell them where to turn and my translator uh, who was an Arab guy, he turns to me and he laughs and he goes, oh, they all know this verse by heart. <laughs> it's like, of course you do. I, I guess I would too if it said something about America. But they had memorized this verse, Egypt, my people, right? Here in the book of Exodus, they seem to be enemy number one. But that's not necessarily God's perspective in the long term. He's just going to get his people out of their land now. One day he will save them as well. And so, verse 10. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. God commands Moses to go and to bring. Interesting, isn't it, that God often uses people to save people. He could have just done it on his own, but he chooses to use Moses and for some reason I don't understand, he chooses to use us. 
I certainly think it would be easier for God to just go around us, but he seems to think there's wisdom in the process. And so, we submit to God and we allow him to use us for his glory. And so, verse 11, Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? At this point, I'm not totally sure that Moses is copping some attitude with God. Okay? Maybe a little bit later, but at this point, I think this is probably a humble and respectful response to a massive task. I don't think we should necessarily think poor of him at this point, because, I mean, think about what God has asked him to do. In verse 12, he said, But I will be with you, and this will be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. God with someone means that God's presence is going to provide directional help and spiritual guidance for them in life. And so he says, this is what I'm going to give to you if you will but trust me. And then here's the sign. What's strange about the sign? Okay. So if he needs a sign to motivate him to go back into Egypt... This doesn't seem to provide very much motivation, right? Here's the sign I'm going to give you. Ready? When you're done, you'll come back here. But if that's not the sign, and we don't come back here, then I've already done it. Right? It's a little bit strange for us as to what exactly God is saying. But I think the sign itself required faith. Biblical faith requires trusting in God's word. Hebrews 11.6 says you trust in his existence, trust that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. Some signs require waiting, perhaps like here. And yet Moses knows that God is a God of his word and can be trusted, and in the end, he'll make it all the way back to this point. Here in a few chapters, Exodus chapter 5, Exodus chapter 6, I wonder if Moses was not remembering this promise and saying, well, I guess I can be bold because God said I'm going to come back here. So I'll stand up to Pharaoh and I'll do these things. And so, verse 13, then Moses said to God, well, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What will I say to them? I think it's a legitimate question, especially in Egypt where you have so many deities. Hey, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Well, who? What's his name, right? They want to know who this is that's taking on their cause. And so verse 14, God says, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. We translate it, and to English kind of woodenly for how it is in Hebrew. It's a little bit awkward, isn't it? I am who I am. I wonder if this is not almost an anti-name, right? Kind of like God saying, you want to know a name to tell him? Tell him, I just am. That's who I am. I just am, right? In some ways, this may be a polemic against other gods, other gods who seem to work but actually don't work at all. And God says, I am the only one. 
I am the only one who exists. It ends any question about his authority because he is the one who is and he is the one who causes to be. Verse 15, God said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is my abiding identity, Garrett says. His covenantal identity is wrapped up in his name. He is the God who is. And thankfully, he is still the God who is. Right? In a world full of other gods vying for their attention, for our attention. God is. And so, the Lord has appeared, he says, uh, to gather the elders of Israel, verse 16, and tell them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so... This is what's going to happen when they come out. Notice, this is the second time he said a land flowing with milk and honey. But this is only the second time it's found in all of Scripture. This promise of a land flowing with milk and honey was not given to the patriarchs who wouldn't be able to taste of the goodness of the land that was theirs. But the promise was given to those who potentially could taste of it with their own lips, who could see it, with their own eyes. And so, they will listen to your voice, he says, and you, the elders of Israel, will go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Well, they want to go for longer than three days, right? But God knows what Pharaoh is going to say. I wonder if this... uh, if this phrase, a three days journey, was not kind of a, a cultural way of talking about a, a trip with formal consequences. How long are you going to be gone? Oh, you know, a couple days. Three, four. Early in our marriage, April and I had several discussions about what the word couple meant, right? Whether or not it was actually just two, or whether three or four, or maybe five could be included in a couple, right? And I wonder if there's a little bit of this ambiguity around this phrase in Hebrew, a three days journey. What do you mean a three days journey? How long exactly are you talking about, right? But God knows how Pharaoh is going to respond. He won't even let him do that. And so he says, I know, verse 19, the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. And so, verse 20, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. When you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold, jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, and so you shall plunder the Egyptians. God told Abram in Genesis 15 verse 14 that this very thing would happen. Early Jewish exegetes saw this as payment for all of those years that they worked as slave labor. Finally, they got their paycheck as they were headed out of town. Interesting idea. Okay, moving along. We're not going to get through Exodus chapter 6 today. 
but that's all right. Exodus chapter 4. Now, Moses, I think the reality is setting in, okay? He's beginning to realize what he's actually been called to do. And he says, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Notice, Moses' concern is not so much about the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh. He's concerned about those people of his, right? Like that guy who he rescued from the Egyptians, and then like word got around, and then that other guy, who are you? Who made you boss over us, right? That's who Moses is afraid of, and they're not going to listen to me. And so God says, well, I'll tell you what you do. I'll provide three signs for you. First of all, what's that in your hand? Well, it's a staff. This is a, uh, this staff here in verse 3 then becomes a serpent and Moses runs from it. So, yeah, it's perhaps why it was a burning bush and not a flaming angel with a sword because Moses runs from snakes. So, I might have run from the snake too though, right? It's the... It's the same word used in Genesis chapter 3 for the serpent there. Uh, It moves in rocks. Throughout Scripture, this word is used of something that is paired with scorpions. It's what is put on the pole later on for all to see. Interestingly enough, um, when, when Moses does this before Pharaoh, there's a different word used for the serpent there. But here, he, he throws his staff on the ground and it becomes a serpent. And so, God says, see, sign number one. Sign number two, then, again, verse six, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak and we took it out. Behold, his hand was leprous, like snow. This is probably not leprosy or Hansen's disease, but some sort of scaly skin condition. Okay? So then, that's sign number two. And sign number three, If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. In Egyptian, I wrote there in your notes, the word for Nile is Hapi. It's the same as the God that they worshipped. This was the God's name, Hapi. The same word for Nile. And in this, in this act, Moses is striking the Egyptians at the very heart of their theology. You worship a god of the Nile, and yet watch as I take that very water and I turn it into blood. And so, verse 10, Moses says, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and of tongue. This may be exaggerated humility, right? Um, If it is, I think culturally people would have understood Moses is kind of talking about, oh, I'm totally ill-equipped to do this. I'm not entirely convinced that he had a stuttering problem. But God says, hey, you have nothing, nothing to complain about. Who made the mouth? Who made your eyes? Who made your ears? Who made it all? Yeah, that was me. And so, go, I will be with your mouth, and I will tell you what to speak. Okay. You can't really argue with that, right? And now, verse 13, But then he said, 
Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Okay, so if you're waiting to get frustrated with Moses, now you have permission. Okay. I think now we've passed any point of kind of general kind refusal or anything. Now he's just asking, get someone out. Get someone else to do it. I don't want to do it. And so God is angry with him. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's coming out. He'll be glad in his heart. Speak to him. I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. And so Moses heads back to his father-in-law Jethro after this amazing encounter on the mountain. There he says, I'm going to go back and see what's going on with my brothers in Egypt. He says, go in peace. And so Moses heads out with his wife and his sons. He heads out with his staff and he starts to go back to Pharaoh. Now, we have a brief interlude in verses 21 through 23 where God says to Moses, when you go back, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he won't let you go. But then you shall say to Pharaoh, verse 22, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And then now, we have what is one of the most difficult sections in all of Exodus, right? I think many of us would be just fine if verses 24, 25, and 26 were not in our Bibles. But here they are, and so we should probably think about them a little bit. At a lodging place along the way, this is how the ESV says it, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Any questions? Okay, let's just go ahead and... Okay, part of the reason this is difficult to understand is because there's not many, there's not many actual names in this text. So I, I tried to help you a little bit. I put there on your, uh, the back side of your uh, handout. I gave you kind of a wooden translation. I'm not saying this is the best translation. I'm just saying if we're going to kind of strictly follow the Hebrew, it says, it happened on the way in the lodging place. The Lord met him. Who's him? Are we sure it's Moses? Why do we think it's Moses? Maybe our Bibles say Moses, but usually if they say Moses, they're going to have a little footnote that says Hebrew, him. Right? Okay. He, he's having a conversation with Moses. But who is just talked about in the, in the verses before? Pharaoh, and especially who? Son. What is God going to do? He's going to kill Pharaoh's son. And then in the very next verse, at a lodging place along the way, the Lord met him, and tried to kill him. So maybe there's a connection there. Perhaps this is not Moses. Perhaps it's Moses' son. The text is definitely ambiguous. I just don't think we can know for certainty that it's Moses. So what does Zipporah do? Well, she steps up her game, right? I don't know what Moses was doing, right? Where is he in all of this? Is he... 
So is he sleeping? Right? The man is sleeping, and then his wife senses the danger and saves his life or her son's life. Who knows? But she's the one who takes action. She takes some flint, and she cuts off the foreskin of her son. And then she places it to his feet. His feet. Whose feet? I don't know. Is it it Moses' feet? Is it the son's feet? And feet in Scripture... Uh, can be a euphemism for another part of the body, especially for a man. And so she cut off the foreskin and she put it on his feet, down there or somewhere in the middle, I don't know. And then she says, a bridegroom of blood you are to me. What's clear? I think what's clear is that his son wasn't circumcised. And I'm not sure why. Right? This was a sign of the covenant that God had given to Abraham And Moses, for reasons we don't know, had chosen not to circumcise his son. We don't know. Yeah. Since he was raised by the Egyptians, maybe that wasn't important. That very well may be true. She said, since he was raised by the Egyptians, maybe that wasn't important to him. So maybe he has just realized that this is. He's just now realizing maybe this is what I'm supposed to do. Zipporah figures it out. His wife, right? And she takes care of business. And then she says, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Uh, The word there for bridegroom can kind of generically just mean like a relative by marriage. So maybe it's bridegroom. Maybe it could be like a cousin or something or an uncle even. So you are now a relative to me, a bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision, what I did. So part of me wonders if the whole process here is not God seeking to kill Moses or his son. I lean a little bit more towards Moses' son, just because of the context. If he's not trying to kill him because he was not circumcised. And God is deadly serious about the things that he has said to his people. And I think he holds Moses to that, what Moses should have known. And so, God, in the end, let him go. Okay. Um, At Ozark, we take an entire day of the course, and I let them kind of research this passage. And it's great, because every time they all come into class on, like, the day we're going to discuss this, and they're like, what in the world? This is crazy. Yes. Uh, It is a tough passage. So, I think God is proving to Moses that he's serious about what he's doing. Um, God means business. And he's not only serious about what he was going to do to Moses' son or to Moses himself. He's also serious about what he just said about Pharaoh and killing Pharaoh's son. Right? So, let's remember that context. If God is willing to kill Moses or Moses' son... He is also willing to kill Pharaoh's son as well. And so, he goes along the way, thankfully because of Zipporah. Maybe because of the circumcision, she's like, we're just going to hang out here for a while. You go ahead and do your thing with Pharaoh. We'll catch up to you later. But Lord, uh, the Lord says to Aaron, go meet your brother Moses. And so, they meet in the wilderness And then together, they go to talk to 
the people of Israel. Listen to what happens at the end of chapter 4. Verse 30, Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. When they heard that their cries at the end of chapter 2 actually made their way to God and now he was going to do something about it, they fell down and they worshipped. The Hebrew word for worship means to just prostrate yourself on the ground. They fell down and they praised God because he had heard their cries. But that's not how things remain. We move quickly into chapter 5. This is a difficult text. Uh, difficult in the sense of, of we begin to feel the weight of what is happening to the people of Israel. All throughout this chapter, we find the drive of, I think, what we can just call consumerism. More, more, more. Everything for Pharaoh is about production. And it's absolutely exhausting. I wonder if some of us could ever fall into this. Verse 1, listen to what it says. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Uh, I think they're probably feeling a little bit bold. This is not exactly what God had said in chapter 3, verse 18. Um, he, it looks a little bit more like what God had told him to tell Pharaoh in here in a few verses after Pharaoh's like, no way. But here at the beginning, Moses seems to be pretty bold with him. He says, we want to take a feast in the wilderness. And so... Verse 2, listen to what Pharaoh says. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh is obstinate. But then again, he has had no personal experience with God. All of this is about to change rather quickly. Who is the Lord is quite different than I am. And he's going to learn who the I am is before very long. To not know, perhaps is, is him saying, I do not acknowledge this God's authority. Pharaoh legitimately may not know who Yahweh is. But Yahweh certainly knows him. And it's not going to go well. Verse 3, so they try again. The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please. He says please this time. Right. He's a little more polite second time around. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Ironically, uh, the two threats for the people from God, pestilence and the sword, are actually going to come upon the Egyptians themselves when they choose not to listen to what God has said. And so, verse 4, the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. Perhaps the people have already slacked off a little bit because of what happened in 431. They heard God's going to deliver them, and so, hey, well, we don't got to do work anymore. God's showing up to deliver us. Things are going to be good around here. We're headed out. See if I'll build you another building. And so, Pharaoh accuses them. 
of keeping the people away from their work. Verse 5. Uh, Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. You're the one who's causing all of this. Verse 6, The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past, but let them go and gather straw for themselves. Notice, this is not bricks without straw. They still have to include the straw to make the bricks. This is Get your own straw, right? So maybe our chapter heading needs to be changed to harsher working conditions or something like that. Because uh, it's not that they're without straw altogether. And so, let's see, verse 8. The number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifices to our God. He leaves out the name of Yahweh. He still hasn't quite figured out who this Yahweh is yet. In verse 9, let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. I think this is, I think this is great. Uh, Pharaoh says, it's hard to tell in English, but he says, uh, let... Let it be heavy, the work upon the men. Okay? The word used for work here is the same word used later for service. Okay? And I think there's a little bit of a play on words that Pharaoh is making them work, and yet they want to go serve the Lord their God. Okay? And so, he accuses the men of listening to lying words, deceitful words. This is actually the, the accusation of the enemy in the garden, right? He tries to get us to listen to deceitful words. And so, verse 10, the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out, and they said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Remember verse 31 of the last chapter? They fell down and they worshipped. And now verse 10. Go get your own straw. You can imagine the reality is setting in among the people. And I put there in your outline, surely this reinforces the very biblical concept that following God often results in our suffering. The suffering continues I will not give you straw. Go get your own straw. So the people are scattered. Then, verse 13, the taskmasters are urgent. Complete your work, your daily task, each day, as when you had straw. And then, when they didn't do it, verse 14, the foremen of the people of Israel were beaten, and they were asked, why did you not do it? Making the bricks today just as many as you had made before. Pharaoh here is insatiable. Brueggemann notes that even as you're reading through the chapter, Pharaoh's words and the taskmaster's words seem to be as relentless as the production schedule. Everything is about production. Make more, make more, make more, make more. And so the foreman of the people, they think, surely there's just been a misunderstanding. 
I mean, no one in their right mind could expect us to make the same number of bricks when we're not given straw. And so they cry out, let's go to Pharaoh. All the way to the top. He surely will hear us. And so they head to Pharaoh, verse 15. Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to us. Yet they say, make bricks. Behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. It's not us, it's your people. And listen to what Pharaoh says. You are idle, you are idle. That's not a repetition of endearment. Okay. This is why you say, let us go and sacrifice. Go now and work. Go and serve, is what Pharaoh will actually later say. Interestingly enough, the exact same phrase used in Exodus 10.8, 10.24, and 12.31. We just translate it differently because of the context. Here he says, go and work. There he uses the same exact words to say, go, get out of here, and serve the Lord your God. Very ironic what he says here and how it plays out in the rest of the book. And so, verse 19, the foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. I think the reality has set in. There is no further recourse. They have appealed to the Supreme Court and the decision has been made. And that's it. There's nothing else to do. And so, verse 20, they meet Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out and they said, The Lord look on you and judge. Almost sounds like a curse, doesn't it? Because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. Woodenly they say, verse 21, you have turned rancid, our odor, in the eyes of Pharaoh and his servants. I wonder if Pharaoh was like, or if Moses was, you're mixing your metaphors, right? So turning rancid in the nose, I think you mean, not the eyes. But when you're angry, Apparently, you're not thinking about these things. And so, verse 22, Moses turned to the Lord. Notice how far we've moved from verse 31 of the end of the last chapter, right? Falling down in worship. And now, the only thing that's changed is their external circumstances. Not the truth. The truth never changed. But their pain changed. And their work changed, and their difficulties changed. Yeah. I'm not sure. I don't think it was very much time. Maybe a week. Maybe that's even too long. But we don't really get huge clues here. And so Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to the people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Moses here begins a long tradition. Hamilton notes this. He begins a long tradition of truth talking and truth telling in biblical prayer. God can handle your complaints. Sometimes life is hard. And sometimes life does not give us what we want. And God can handle our complaints. He knows our hearts. And so we don't need to pretend with God 
that we're happy on the inside when all we're doing is crying out in anger and pain. Moses was impatient for God's deliverance. You can tell here this whole ordeal has not been up to Moses' expectations. You can almost see him thinking, I told you so. You should have let me out there in the wilderness, gathering those flocks and leading them around. I was a sojourner out there, but at least, at least I wasn't the object of scorn from everybody in my nation. Listen to what Stuart says, and I put this on your outline. God's timing only sometimes coincides with our expectations. And his idea of the hardships we need to go through only sometimes coincides with our idea of how much we can take. How quickly praise can turn to despair. And yet we serve a God who is able to hear it all and handle it all and walk with us through it all. This is a surprise to Moses. None of it is a surprise to God who has promised to walk side by side with Moses through every step of the journey. And praise the Lord, He does the same for us. Amen. Let me pray for you, and then we'll be dismissed. Lord, I thank You that You do not leave us alone. Sometimes our hardships seem more than we can handle. In those moments, God, I pray that You would give us boldness to cry out to You, to tell You what is really happening in our heart, and that humility then to sit at Your feet and listen as You speak to us. Remind us, Lord, that You constantly walk with us, that because of Jesus, You are our constant companion. We thank You, Lord, for this truth, and we cling to it. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.